0: You're listening to Giro Vagando, the cycling podcast at the 2021 Giro d'Italia, powered by Super Sapiens, Energy Management. ...for committed athletes and coaches. Today, we are in
1: Termoli.
2: Yeah, he can be quite uh, uh, disappointed, but that's, like everybody, that's the sprinter uh, behaviour, I think. And uh, But yeah, we like we like him happy.
3: Well, before we uh, find out who that was, Daniele Friberoncini Frappuccino...
4: Where are we? Where are we,
3: Richard? I'm going to turn the you. question around.
4: Puglia. Very good. You were, we're paying not attention. Malese, are no. We? we weren't in Molise for very really long. My local
3: pizzeria in uh, Tooting uh, did a pizza called the Molise, and it was excellent. It was always my go-to pizza. What an anecdote. <laughs> <laughs> More where that came from. <laughs> Stay tuned. <laughs>
4: Go on. <laughs> well... well, well we're we're here really to talk about cycling, and um, we will be talking, unfortunately, for those who didn't appreciate last hang night's conversation oh, hang about jogging We're here free. to talk about
3: cycling, are we? Yes. The quote of the day was uh, when we got in the car after <laughs> the start this morning, and I asked you what Balca Mollema had said about yesterday's stage, where he'd been in the breakaway, and you'd have fancied him for the win. Um, Gino made a road away, took the stage, and you spoke to him at length this morning. I said, what did uh, Mollema say about yesterday?" and you said oh, i don't know i didn't talk to him about no, cycling i had
4: no business talking cycling with balcomolama anyway um okay well who do, are we speaking about where we are or
3: are we going to talk well, tell people who we're in torre we heard maggiore
4: we're in torre maggiore which is a little town just outside foggia which is in the northern part of puglia um, we crossed the border we we went w- through a whole region didn't we today Molise second smallest region in Italy we'll talk more about that later we started the day in Abruzzo not Le Marche I got that wrong yesterday I thought we were still in Le Marche so um thousand lines for me tonight well it was Caleb Ewan that put
3: you right on that wasn't it this morning he colored you and said you'd got that wrong um he's the man of the day and it was his teammate we heard from at the start
4: Roger Kluger talking about well Talking about the sprint that Caleb Ewan won today, but also talking about Caleb Ewan as a boss. Yeah, because I had a chat with someone at Lotto
3: Sudal, I was going to say Lotto Soudal, but they've not got Soudal here, they've won two stages now with Caleb Ewan. Um, I had a chat with someone from Lotto Sudal the other day who said that Caleb Ewan was very professional and very demanding of his teammates. And... He gave a fantastic press conference. What a
4: press conference
3: uh, after the stage! It makes our life so much more, um, so much easier and more interesting. I mean, he and Attila Valtar, who's the uh, pink jersey, both of them really engaged and engaging, and really thoughtful in their answers to the questions. I must
4: say, Kelly Ewan is one of those guys who's an absolute joy to deal with um, from the point of view of media relations. Um, and, and it made me think today that. He's someone who we perhaps, because of the the sort of context he's come into as far as sprinting is concerned, but also because of the the trajectory of his, his career and the wins, he's tended to win two or three times in a Grand Tour. And just at the moment when you've thought that this is the absolute sort of overlord of sprinting, someone else has either come along or they've taken the next stage and the, the one after that and he's never really had the same status as maybe a Mark Cavendish or a Marcel Kittel before that a Cipollini and he probably deserves it. Yeah I mean
3: he's, it's his fifth stage win in the Giro um, tonight, uh, second stage win in this race, the 37th Australian stage win at the Giro d'Italia. Who was the first sta- uh, Australian stage winner at the Giro d'Italia? Daniel, um, I've no idea, Richard. Michael Wilson in 1982. We covered this in our Giro uh, last year, I think you'll recall. It's the first time, however, he's led the points competition at the Giro and worn the Ciclomino jersey as the uh, points leader. Which, And I asked him in the press conference whether that might influence how long he stays in this Giro, because we've got a couple of pretty tough days coming up. Um, he said it wouldn't. And again, he gave an interesting answer to that, saying that sprinters... Um, suffer sprinters struggle to recover more from going very deep in mountain stages than other riders
4: richard this all feels a bit like delaying tactics Um, yeah you're prevaricating because i've been getting a bit of stick from my tails of the tapa and my response to that is
3: i'm not even going to try tonight i mean it wasn't a very interesting stage uh 881 kilometers down the coast from notaresco to termoli uh a very Uneventful stage really until the finale and we had quite an interesting finish. The breakaway, uh, Umberto Marengo of Bardiani, Simon Pelot of Androni, Giacattoli and Mark Christian of Iolo. The team that is uh, run by Alberto Contador and Ivan Basso and Sean Yates is their sports director here. Uh, They were caught, it was a headwind finish. (laughs) This is really... I'm not I'm not honouring uh, Lionel Burney in my tail of the tap here. There was a very interesting steep little climb at one point six kilometres to go. Twelve percent. Um not long, but but just enough to make the, the finish um a little bit different to a, a normal sprint finish. Um but Caleb Ewan, we, we know he can get up climbs. Uh we saw at Milan Sanremo how strong he was. And in fact I asked another day if he had flashbacks to Milan Sanremo and wished he'd um attacked on the Poggio as he seemed to uh, be about to do at one point um, he said yes well no he didn't actually, he said no uh, that that wasn't really an option at the time anyway uh, he, he his team did a fantastic job for him today Roger Kluger, who we'll hear from again uh, was instrumental in that but Jasper de Boost was phenomenal leading him up the climb all the way looking round all the time checking he was still there um, and uh, yeah great job uh, by him Um Fernando Gaviria, it's not been going all that well for him in the sprint, so he tried a different approach today. Took a flyer, went early. We've seen him do that before. Remember, he won Parry Tour like that several years ago. Um, he's a bit more than just a bunch sprinter, but it didn't quite pay off for him. Uh, Caleb Ewan went early, and he won very, very convincingly in the end. Davide Cimolai was second. Tim Merlier was third. Matteo Moschetti of Trek Segafredo was fourth. I was disappointed that Tim Merlier wasn't second because he apparently had to stop to answer a call of nature. But not not a straightforward call of nature. uh, You were disappointed because it wasn't his
4: second number two of the day. You've
3: stolen my joke. Sorry, Richard. Yes, I was disappointed it wasn't his second number two of the day. Um, Attila Walter stayed in the pink jersey of race leader. Ewan, as I said, is now in the Chiclamino jersey. And Gino Mader, our diarist, remains in the King of the Mountains jersey. It
4: just occurred to me that, well, you mentioned Marengo being in the break. I didn't know where Marengo was. I've just realised that it was quite close to where this Giro started. It's just outside Alessandria in, in Piedmont. And um, we are currently recording this podcast. And I think I'd have to crane my neck to see, but when we came in, I think it was called the Nelson. Um, unfortunately, I've looked it up and Nelson doesn't seem to have been involved in the battle of Marengo. He was, was, of course, heavily involved um, in some of the other famous Napoleonic battles, but not Marengo, I don't think.
0: Still guessing on fueling? Not sure what or when to eat and drink on rights that matter? Never again. Optimize your fueling strategy with real-time glucose data, actionable insights, and personalized analytics. We're here to help you achieve your performance goals. Go to supersapiens.com for more on how to track your energy levels and fuel for success. The Cycling Podcast, powered by Super Sapiens.
3: Thanks very much to our new title sponsor, Super Sapiens, who came uh, on board just before the Giro d'Italia. Very grateful to them for their support and really interested in the product that they produce as well. We've heard... Uh, so far in this year, from uh, Super Sapiens founder Phil Sutherland, a type 1 diabetic, about how important real-time glucose monitoring is for him. But how can it help all athletes improve their fueling to help them train more effectively? Well, Super Sapiens is a continuous glucose monitoring system that helps you make the right fueling choices. Over time, the user can learn how to best manage their energy resources. It takes the guesswork out of when and what to eat. Um, how does it work? The Abbott Libra Sense Glucose Sport Biosensor k- sticks to the back of the upper arm. A thin filament is inserted just under the skin to accurately measure glucose levels and it then sends real-time glucose data to the SuperSapiens app. Each biosensor patch lasts 14 days. And we are running a competition. Uh, three cycling podcast listeners will win three months' supply of SuperSapiens so they can monitor their blood glucose levels, and manage their fueling more effectively. We ask you to send in uh, clips, either audio or video, uh, of a minute or less telling us how and why you would use Super Sapiens to help you achieve your cycling goal. Let's hear from another uh, entrant tonight, James Hayton.
5: Hello to everyone at the Cycling podcast. My challenge for the year is competing in the transcontinental race, which is a self-supported ultra-distance race covering around 4,000 kilometres. We start in Brest on July 27th, passing through four compulsory checkpoints en route to Thessaloniki in Greece. And in order to earn a place in the general classification, you have to finish this distance within 14 days. In preparation, in addition to the obvious investment in training the body, we spent countless hours poring over maps and testing and fettling our kit fueling and hydration are obviously hugely important when averaging 350 kilometers a day for 12 days. Having said that, the extent to which racers rely upon junk food and sugary snacks in these events is quite well known. Understanding how to balance a diet to maximize our energy while avoiding potential negative consequences could be significantly aided by biofeedback from the super sapiens sensor. I think Super Sapiens could help bring the same level of rigour that we've applied to all the other dimensions of planning for this race.
3: Well, thanks for that, James. We've heard from two entrants, both called James. You don't have to be called James to enter this competition. Um, but if you would like to enter, do go to thecyclingpodcast.com um, and you can, uh, you can find more details there about how to enter this amazing competition. As I say, we're picking three winners over the course of the Giro, each to receive three months. Supply of Super Sapiens and you don't have to be doing the transcontinental race it can be not quite as lofty an ambition as that to the stage Daniel
4: well Richard before we move on to the stage you mentioned well we always mention glucose levels when we talk about Super Sapiens we were presented with a fantastic selection pack of La Molizana oh my God pasta when we got to the press room today sometimes we do get gifts i must confess and uh, you know we'll go on to talk about molise and this idea this myth that that the the whole region doesn't exist but one of the things that molise is famous for is the pasta and particularly a brand of pasta called la molisana which is now being exported you you occasionally find it in sort of swanky delicatessens in the uk for example we got a huge box of it today didn't we Um, enormous i don't know how i'm going to get it home no, I don't know how, was it a kilo? What do you, how many grams of pasta? What's the typical um, portion for the buffalo? I eat a
3: lot of a pasta. Lot, I overindulge. Just, I remember a re- there was a recent um, episode of, of Mitch Docker's Life in the Peloton with uh, Luke Durbridge and he said that he had 500 grams, I think, of pasta I can believe before it. a classic, before a
4: classic. I sort of 100 grams it. is the recommended Yes, I amount, tend to budget for 150 to 200
3: Oh uh, yeah, easily, easily more than that I, mean, I always go just by um, by guesswork, which uh, I think when I'm wearing my Super Sapiens device, that might,
4: that might change,
3: who knows um, but yeah, I was I, he, he said that 500 grams didn't seem that much but that is a lot of pasta a lot of pasta, but if you have to ride 260 kilometres, maybe it isn't. So the stage, Daniel, um, Caleb Ewan, again, I mean, we don't want to dwell too long on, on his press conference, but he is, especially here, I think, has been in such expansive form. And you asked him uh, a question based on that conversation I had the other day about, you know, what he's like as a leader. Um and he really, it, it really set him thinking, it, look, it's, it appeared.
4: Well, it did, and that question was really based on my conversation with Roger Kluger at the finish line. Um, he's lead-out man long-term, lead-out man now. He, he wasn't the last man today, he was a penultimate man, which is more of an accustomed role for Roger Kluger now. But this is Roger Kluger talking about how they set up the finish, but also what Caleb Ewan is
2: like as a boss.
4: Roger, what was the plan going into that final rise with about 1.5
2: to go? What did you talk about this morning? Yeah, we want to go first, second there. That is the ideal scenario. uh, That he has the the smoothest run through the corner. And uh, now I think we finished top five uh, in this in this turn, which is still good. But uh, important was before already the last five kilometers with some roundabouts, some narrowings, and that we always there kept him pretty much up. That he can go pretty pretty easy through without breaking and accelerating again. And that's. In this hectic finals, uh, that the, is the, the key probably to win if you have still the fresh legs like two days ago uh, because you're always in good position. You don't have to accelerate already ten times before. Then, uh, yeah, the chance is quite big that you win. He's such a mild-mannered
4: guy, but Mark Sargent said the other day he's quite demanding with you guys, but it's OK when he wins, isn't
2: it? Of course, uh, but I think it's every sprinter. They, they always want to win, and even if they finish second, they... Yeah, they're disappointed and then we still analyze it and see what went wrong or if everything was right and just another guy was faster. But yeah, he can be quite uh, uh, disappointed. But that's like everybody, that's the sprinter uh, behavior, I think. And, uh, but yeah, we like, we like him happy.
4: So that was a very smiling, diplomatic answer from Roger Kluger about um, taking orders from Caleb Ewan or what he's like, how he reacts to... Because Roger Kluger's a big guy, is. isn't he? And Caleb Ewan's very cuddly, a, little, isn't he? Small, a yeah. small little fella. <laughs> and, and, um, but there was real insight in how Caleb Ewan responded to that in his press conference. I mean, we know that sprinters are... I wouldn't say difficult characters, but they, by their nature, they have to be demanding. And of the many interesting things that Caleb Ewan said in response to that question was um, what he said about stage one, and he made absolutely no bones about the fact he said, look, I couldn't sprint on stage one because Jasper and Roger didn't put me in the right position, didn't do their job. And obviously, when that happens, we have difficult conversations. He
3: said, if they don't perform, I can't win. Uh, which is an interesting way of looking at it. And it sounds like, yeah, th- I mean, my conversation the other day was obviously, um, uh, you know, based on the conversations they had after that the, in the inquest following stage on clearly. Um, and my impression was that Caleb Ewan knows that he has to be that guy, be the, 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 the person who tells them that they've got it wrong and that they've let him down. Um, and it doesn't come naturally to him. He has to kind of will himself into doing it. Um, but uh, it was, yeah, really insightful answer to him to that from him to that question. And uh, uh, yeah, great insight into how how he operates.
4: Also, really fascinating about his sprinting style. He was asked about his position and his very mm. aerodynamic position, and he talked about how. You know, the longer he's out in front, so, you know, if he goes at, for example, 220, 250 metres as opposed to 150, then he starts to die as he gets close to the line. And that's when aerodynamics become more important and he focuses on them more. He says, you know, when it's a shorter sprint, it's all about getting the power out. And it it sounded to me, and he, he sort of said this in not... Um, so many words that he feels his couple of sprints at the Giro where he's won so far have been quite ragged um, in terms of his position on the bike and aerodynamics but he's managed to get the power out. Daniel, you also spoke to Tim Merlier
3: who has been uh, one of the most consistent sprinters here. Um, Unsurprisingly, you didn't ask him about his toilet break because that's not your your favourite subject, is it?
4: No. It was obviously a complicated sprint with that climb. You know, 1.5 k to go. Um, just talk us in from there. 1.5 to go from your point of view.
1: Yeah, the teams bring me perfect error. I was in good position, so yeah. And uh, it wasn't uh, very uh, very hard. There were no attacks or something. So so I come over it uh, good. But yeah, in the end, I was just just a bit too far, and uh, yeah, that I missed
4: to uh, to win today. Not many opportunities left, but um, how do you think, how do you feel you're recovering and how do you think you're going to be towards the end of the second week? Well,
1: today wasn't good. I uh, was a bit tired, so let's hope the next days it will be better.
4: Well, it was an interesting sprint, wasn't it, Rich? That, that little rise with, what was it, 1.5 kilometres? 1.6 kilometres. 1.6 kilometres 6 go really set the cat amongst the pigeons. And, you know, we saw Gaviria, who's really sort of struggling for form, try something different, take it... Um, take it on early. We'd, we'd heard in advance riders and also pundits talking about um, how the, the lead out men would be deployed very early and someone could go um, very early today. And a couple tried it, but um, a couple got it very wrong, didn't they? And, um, uh, and in terms of distance from Caleb Ewan, there were, there were sprinters who finished in the top 10, but who were a long, long way behind him when they came over the line.
3: Yeah, it wasn't a good day for Nizzolo or Viviani or Sagan who got um, impeded and, and and blocked.
4: And wasn't very happy. Uh, we remarked this morning when he was in the mix zone or, or when we were in the car later how Peter Sagan, you know, is, his interviews are almost... Um, well, they're pretty comedic um, in the sense he says very, very little, and he's got this whole sort of shtick, this very nasal and now," but um, he never says no to an interview. Um, he's fantastic with the media in that regard. He, you know, dutifully goes about his business. He shuffles along the mix zone, responding to everyone. This evening, when he got to the bus compound, um, he was asked if he wanted to speak and react to to the sprint, and he said, "Leave." Him. Leave me in peace. <laughs> no, he, 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 in Italian, in lasciami in pace, or something along those lines. <laughs> Who needs Peter Cigar on the podcast when we've got Daniel?
0: <laughs> the Cycling Podcast at the 2021 Giro d'Italia is supported by Science in Sport. Science in Sport, fueled by science.
3: Thank you very much indeed to Science and Sport, our long-time sponsor. If you want 25% off all your Science and Sport products, go to scienceandsport.com and enter the code SISCP25. S-I-S-C-P-25. And we're also running a Science and Sport competition to uh, guess the winner on Sunday stage. Sunday's very interesting stage, actually. real, real climby stage, up and down all day. It starts in Castel de Sangro, which was the subject of today's Kilometre Zero, if you haven't caught up with that. The book, The Miracle of Castle de Sangro. It's
4: an absolute barnstormer of a Kilometre Zero.
3: It's, it was very enjoyable to, to do because it's a great sports book. Um, but if you want to enter the Science of Sport competition to win uh, a, a bundle of Science of Sport goodies, go to thecyclingpodcast.com. Also a reminder that if you'd like to send in a question for our press conference on the rest day on Tuesday, um, please email us contact at cyclingpodcast.com, send us an audio file with your question or write it out and if you write it out we'll deal with it in video format somehow uh, but we've been getting a few questions already thanks very much for them do keep them coming and ask us anything at all
4: well, Rich, no GC action today, but you mentioned, well, there's going to be a difficult stage on Sunday. Another difficult stage tomorrow. It's going to be quite an exciting weekend with a lot of general classification action. The final climb tomorrow is only short. Um, it's under four kilometers, but there's some steep ramps on it. Um, steep enough for the, the, the pink jersey to potentially be under threat. Um, what's Attila? Otila, as we learned today, we should pronounce it. Otila. In, in Hungarian. And also... The, the issue of um, is it Ottila Valter or Valter Ottila? Um, well, I think, if you remember I think last it's just year, been decided now, hasn't it? Not? Well, if we remember last year when we spoke to Ottila and, and asked him this, he was quite ambiguous about it. He sort of suggested it didn't really matter, but i subsequently learned that in Hungary it's more common to use the surname first. Um, so, his Ottila's Hungarian chums would refer to him as a Valter. Well, free, Daniel. Um, I, don't, I don't know. Uh, again,
3: very um, a very composed uh, press conference from Attila. Uh, first, day in the pink jersey today. You know, he's, I was watching his positioning because he he'd mentioned last night that that's an issue for him. And even in the pink jersey, he was not out out of position as such, but he wasn't perhaps always at the front as you'd expect the pink jersey to be. And that could also owe something to the team that he's here with, who are not really sort of. Um, geared up to massing around and protecting him.
4: We discussed that yesterday, didn't we, his positioning, He he's very honest self-assessment when it came to positioning. Um, I had a chat this morning with his agent, Mattia Galli, who's also the agent of ROG, Primoz Roglic. And Mattia, it was interesting, um, that the story Mattia told me about recruiting Otilla. And it was in the 2018 Tour of Slovakia that we mentioned yesterday, I think, where um, he came to most people's notice by finishing third in a stage um, behind Julien Alaphilippe. And Jan Tratnik was very well placed that day as well. And he is Matthias client. And Mattia asked Tratnik afterwards, what do you make of this, you know, this young Hungarian lad? And he said, well, he was in the wind all day. Um, he... he didn't really know how to ride on people's wheels and to finish where he did having ridden in that manner uh, it must mean he's incredibly incredibly strong the other thing that M- matthias said is that even back then he was particularly intrigued by the name by um artilla Valter, it immediately grabbed his attention and that had sort of set his antenna buzzing even before this stage of the Tour Slovakia in 2018, he'd spotted him in the results and was was extra cu- curious about him. And um, yeah, they've gone on to to form a, a fruitful um, duo and working relationship. But Matea also told me that Groupama, um, their interest in Attila dates from two or three years ago. Um, and when the opportunity came to sign him, when CCC sort of folded at the end of last year, they leapt at that opportunity.
3: One little detail from his press conference tonight. He forgot to load up the stage into his Garmin today, um, which was interesting. Um, not that it perhaps mattered in the end. Uh, Daniel, you spoke to a rider who has been impressive so far and could maybe take the pink jersey tomorrow, Remco Evenepoel, at the start this morning.
4: Well, it was more Chiro, actually. The 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 elusive, lesser-spotted Chiro. We're going to hear from Chiro, though. Asking the questions. And, um, yeah, this was remco or rich one day we're going to slip up and we're going to be speaking to remco and we're going to call him raincoat because that is That's what you call that him his, that don't, is his don't drag me into that this his,
3: his remco if you're listening i don't his I don't common ever tell appellation
4: that. in the car so this is remco venipol and just just reflecting on yesterday's mountain stage
5: uh cold it was the first feeling uh and then in the end i felt quite happy with my performance with the feeling uh i could follow him but then in the end it was our finish headwind so uh, uh the sprint was quite hard with the headwind but in the end uh, we did a perfect job with the team fausto and uh, joao worked very well on the climb the other guys they uh, put me very well at the start of the climb so uh i think it was an amazing day for us yeah the ranking is very good i think we cannot be in a better position than now um, so, the main goal is to to arrive safe at the at the rest day, and then from then on, I think the the g c battle will completely explode so rich eleven seconds remco
4: is behind Attila, um heading into the weekend this there's, there's a real steeliness about Attila, and I think that he could keep the jersey tomorrow I think it's a a short enough climb. I mean, he's he's got to be careful of the bonus seconds as well. I think it would be you know great for Groupama if a break goes down the road and the the, the, the GC riders are not competing for bonus seconds because that is where he could potentially come a cropper tomorrow, I think.
3: If not tomorrow, then Sunday you would think that there's a reasonable chance that when we get to the rest day... Evan will be in the pink jersey and what a story that will be
4: and i talk about bonus seconds and the the gc riders going for the stage win or not that's interesting that's the topic that came up this morning in another conversation i had with dan martin who is flying high on general classification he's ninth 47 seconds down um has been at the front in all of the climbing stages when did dan last do the Giro? oh um
3: 2010
4: wow it's a wow. long time since he's been back to the Giro. And, um, yeah, he talked about the fact that the battle for stage wins and the GC battle are sort of on diverging paths because of the way this, the, the race is, is set up. But um, that leaves Dan a little bit be- caught between two stores because he wanted to come here and complete his collection of stage wins in all three major tours. Anyway, this was Dan this morning.
6: It's a this weird situation at the moment. I've got zero expectation for this race at all. I'm just, I know I'm feeling good. My numbers have been good in training. I feel like, yeah, I'm just, I'm so relaxed mentally and just feel zero pressure. So I'm just enjoying the race. We're trying to. The weather's been pretty bad so far, so it's not exactly my best conditions either. Like I don't, I don't like it when it's wet and cold, and I seem to be going good anyway. So, yeah, it's, uh, yeah, I'm just. I think you see the way I'm racing as well I've kinda, I'm just going into the finals really relaxed and just yeah, letting it play out and yeah yesterday I had the legs to be there but that's not going to happen every day, I know that In some ways it's been quite a typical Giro first week in that by the courses a lot of little climbs
4: that maybe aren't even on the road but you're not expecting Does part of you think, I wish I'd done the Giro more
6: often? Uh, I never of course I mean it's always been a, a, a bit of a thing for me that I haven't been back here but it's also I kind of fell in love with the Ardennes Classics you know and then the Tour so it, it just never fitted you know and it's uh, that's why it was tight and also that comes from sponsor pressure too obviously everybody the teams I was in always chose to send me to the Tour and we always had riders going to the Giro like focused on that so yeah it, it was just uh, it's, not, it's really nice to be here this year anyway and uh, just yeah hope the weather improves so and you've got this goal of getting a stage win in each of the Grand
4: Tours um, does that I mean is that difficult to reconcile with the goal of also doing well on GC or do you, I mean obviously you're just taking it a day at a time but if you had to choose between
6: 7th place overall and, and a stage win oh I mean I love riding GC you know I, I learned that at the tour last year that I really missed it uh, just going for stages and stuff so yeah obviously I'd I'd love to do both but um, and it is looking more and more tricky to get a stage victory while you're riding GC because I think there's going to be a lot of stage victories decided by the breakaway so uh, but yeah we came close yesterday unexpectedly we didn't expect the break to come back so we almost got there and uh, so yeah I, I I'm not really thinking about it either way it's like the goals that you set yourself I don't really did not really apply to me I just kind of yeah the goal is to get to Milan and then see what position I am mean there's no goal well,
3: That was Dan Martin we're going to hear from him again in a moment but I mentioned that I finally managed to capture a bit of Ciro Scogna Emilio on tape. He's been an elusive man, this Ciro, but here he was at the finish.
1: D'Italia, d'Italia oh, Ciro, Ciro,
3: I've hardly <laughs> seen you at this, Ciro, but what's happening in the race?
1: I already, uh, dear listeners, uh, I must confess that really... I don't care, so I'm not really well informed. I'm thinking that here internally, it's possible to take the boat, to go to the Tremiti Island, and uh, uh, listeners, believe me, it's much better to go there than to follow Giro d'Italia. You've been a busy man, no, Ciro. You've been very, very busy, haven't you? Yes, yes, uh, especially, I mean, uh, you know, as usual here, there is the shark, but there is Filippo Ganna the giant of vignone and uh, you know that uh, maybe in my future i could became also his shadow better say he can be my shadow certainly much bigger than wow. me but wow absolutely i mean he casts a big shadow there's yeah. room for several shadows <laughs> yes exactly i mean look very strong filippo you know a very special hope uh, for italy also for the olympics and so but uh, also here, the shark. Uh, if he recovers uh, after the crash, uh, maybe in the last week he can do something. You think? Why not? Why not? Uh, because uh, for him, uh, this first part is the much difficult with uh, the pain uh, on his wrist. But why not in the last week when arrive mountains? I mean, the best week for him, the worst for me. Well, you're happy now, chiro We're by the coast. Yes, exactly. But unfortunately, so far, I didn't have the time to win. So, this is a problem.
3: So, Chiro now, the shadow of Filippo Ganna as well as uh, Vincenzo Nibli, spreading himself very thin. But, well, hopefully, we'll get him on at greater length at some point. If you've got a a question for him for the press conference, actually, we'll get a question to him and he'll be, I'm sure, very happy to answer.
4: I think the conclusion we could draw from the first week is that. Ciro hasn't been sort of euro poncing around Italy in the same way that we have flannering around wineries um giro vagando Giro he vagando has, he hasn't been ciro, he's been ciro vagando and Cirovagando <laughs> vagando generally in entails in involves sort of standing on a on a roundabout somewhere about 200 metres from the finish ready to pounce i said Girovagandoing, but that
3: would be that's to, to that's an, kind of a an, double an, gerund angle-sizer. but
4: yeah that's that's fine that's okay well,
3: Daniel, we're going to rewind 24 hours to where we were staying last night, I think.
4: Well, a word about where we were staying last night. As we've established, it was in Abruzzo and not Le Marche. I should have known that. Because I knew that. I knew we were staying on a on a winery, and I knew it was a winery which has a very, well... Uh, nice wine. <laughs> and, uh, yes, um, a very envied reputation for Monte which and Abruzzo, which is a, you know, a wine most people are familiar with. Emilio Pepe began making wine in the 60s, I believe, using what back then were were pretty sort of -of run-of-the-mill methods, but as time has gone on, other producers have sort of evolved and changed and modernized, and this property, Emilio Pepe's property, has retained a very traditional approach, which has kind of become biodynamic by default. And Rich, do you know what we learned today? That we've got something in common with LeBron James. Because, because as the reputation of this winery has sort of soared over the last few years, one thing that's really taken it to the next level was an Instagram story by LeBron James, who apparently is a big wine buff. And at some point in the last year or two, LeBron James posted a picture of an Emilio Pepe and Montepulciano d'Abruzzo, and he said something along the lines of, "We should really bring it up. Um, This is one for the real wine heads out there." And Emilio Pepe's fame and that the property's sort of prestige has exploded since then. Anyway, this morning I was treated to a, a cantina visit by uh, Emilio's granddaughter, Elisa. Okay, Elisa, so you're going to show me the cantina, the famous exactly. Emilio Pepe uh, cantina.
7: Especially the wine cellar, that it's the aging cellar where Every single year, minimum the 50 percent of the old production goes in there.
4: Wow. There we go. Wow. <laughs> we can see thousands and tens of thousands of bottles.
7: 360,000 bottles aging from 64 till the youngest. And every single year, minimum the 50% of the production comes in year to age. But quantity always changed because if we really believe in in a vintage that we think it was very balanced and very good in the vines, we try to keep here as much as we can. And we said very little at the beginning. So...
4: Absolutely yeah. extraordinary. Just a sea of wine bottles. <laughs> and, and and wine everything,
7: yeah, everything ages in bottle. We don't use any oak, any barrels. Our wine stays for two years in a small concrete tanks lined inside with glass and then directly into bottles to keep the personality of the wine like without changing anything. And yeah.
4: Talking about huge quantities of wine um Elisa, the from a well uh, an Anglo Saxon point of view the problem with Montepulciano d'Abruzzo is that when we get Montepulciano d'Abruzzo, it's yeah. produced by these huge cantinas. I One know. of the cantinas was a sponsor of a cycling team a few years ago, Cantina Tolo. Yeah. And it's kind of a, kind of typical of Montepulciano d'Abruzzo. I don't know how many millions of litres they produce every si. year, but that's kind of the image of Montepulciano d'Abruzzo. And what you're doing is very different.
7: It's so different because my grandpa started producing wine with just an actor. And now uh, we have 15, that for us, it's a lot, but the, the cellar is very small, but because we want to do a completely artisanal work. And if we grow bigger, it would have been impossible to follow everything by hand, from the vines to the cellar and then here. So we don't want to grow bigger um, because we care about quality, not about quantity. And my grandpa has always fought a lot against all these huge cantinas that bring all the name of the Montepulciano, like, down. And it's very weird, but we try to do a different work. And (laughs) if
4: people, well, hopefully they'll be able to find an uh, Emilio Pepe wine wherever they are, because you do export to quite a lot of countries now. But if they can't, but they find, they happen upon a Montepulciano d'Abruzzo, what what will they taste? What's a good Montepulciano (laughs) d'Abruzzo?
7: So Montepulciano is an incredible varietal because when it's young, it's very powerful, very strong. But then with the ageing, with the years, it gets such an elegance, a balance, that's very uh, particular and unique. And you only find, only tasting back vintage from Montepulciano.
4: Fantastic. You've convinced me to buy some, but (laughs) I don't think I'm going to make much of a dent in this quantity of wine.
7: Well, Rich, that
4: vineyard visit overnight got us a lot of kudos because um, Greg Andrews of Divine Wines our wine partner on this Giro I told him and needless to say he was incredibly envious but his his exact words on WhatsApp to me were epic stuff massive massive hipster cred we're hipsters so you're a hipster Daniel, no, I'm Richard. a hipster by the tomorrow default. I'll I wake known. up tomorrow I'll come down to breakfast and uh, you'll be there <laughs> sitting with your croissant and cappuccino with her, one of those Moustaches that would suggest you'd be very at home a at Bora Hands Grower. <laughs>
3: <Or EF. laughs> maybe uh, twirling my moustache. Yeah, um, well, no, it was very. It was a lovely place.
4: It was rich and a continuation of our efforts to immerse ourselves um, in the, you know, the culture, the landscape, the sounds. Um, of the, the Giro wines, d'Italia. The, the wines take a deep. Immer- d- I'm immersing <laughs> myself in the wine of Italy. <laughs> take a deep dive into the wines of um, of Italy, and you know, yesterday we talked about geography, didn't we? This myth about Molise—why do I keep harping on about Molise not existing? Well, it's the second smallest region in Italy. Do you know? What the, do you know what the smallest region is, Rich? Um, I don't, but I'm distracted
3: by. Uh, some water has just appeared in the road beside us. That explains the noise. Cars are driving through a deep puddle. Nice uh, deflection there from me. I don't know what the smallest region
4: is. The I, smallest I did region know. that La Valle d'Aosta, which is the, the completely opposite end. Now, if you think of the map of Italy, where's Molise? It's sort of the Achilles tendon of. Um, of Italy just above the heel which is Puglia which is where we are now but this this me myth of Molise not existing has really taken on a life of its own so much so that quite a lot of Molise companies for example La Molisana Pasta which we mentioned earlier we got a lovely selection pack from them Um, today they've started using it as a bit of a marketing slogan where does does this come from this idea well it's not the only place in europe or the world that has had this sort of myth attached to it. there's a town in germany that most people will have heard of called bielefeld which has had the the same sort of conspiracy theory you can look it up on wikipedia look up the bielefeld conspiracy theory i think the town again is a pr stunt last year the Bielefeld's town mayor or town council offered a million euro to anyone who could prove that Bielefeld either existed or didn't exist. And the the same thing has developed about Molise. In fact, um, you know, it's got to the point where people are, are writing pop songs about Molise not making ex- pizzas. Not well, making pizzas, but they're also writing pop songs about Molise not existing. In fact, we'll hear one now. I think this song is from a band called de Rabbia and the song title is molise doesn't exist and we're also going to hear from a gentleman called michele who i met in the dickens pub which was next to the finish line today which is where i watched the finish he's from molise from termoli and i asked him where does this come from why do people think molise doesn't exist
8: una regione abbastanza piccola cioè tutto qui no niente, eh, niente. Tutto è che non la valorizziamo diciamo cioè sì. perché sono state pure bella ma no non sfruttiamo le cose sì, che abbiamo sì. diciamo
1: sì. solo per questo cioè sì. no.
4: so Michele ehm Obviously, answering it in Italian, he just said it's a it's a small region and it's a region that's not really known how to sell itself, and consequently, it's sort of, it's kind of dis- disappeared.
3: Family um, wasn't the nicest of places, I have to say. No, it not, wasn't. Not the most salubrious.
4: It wasn't. But um, it's it's also a region that doesn't have massive cycling heritage, and you know we've talked before about the north south divide in Italy and uh, the south of Italy has not produced many Giro winners the first Giro winner from the south was um, Danilo Di Luca we went through his home region of Abruzzo um, today and that was in 2007 when he won the Giro and um, so not many winners from the south the first Molizano rider at the Giro became a bit of a cult figure He was a guy called Antonio Giovinale um, and he rode the Giro in 1927 and the story went there's a legend that he was a farm worker and he was sort of tilling the soil and one day um, on the road passing the field where he was working the Giro d'Italia went past and he sort of exclaimed I could do that these guys aren't aren't that strong I'm going to do that next year and off he off he went um, he rode the Giro next year. The details about he, you know, <laughs> any altitude training camps he did in the <laughs> meantime, you know, I haven't. I looked today for his Strava files, couldn't find them. But um, he did. He did go on to ride the Giro, and he rode it two or three times. And then he he emigrated. He curtailed his cycling career. He emigrated to the United States, and he died in Cleveland in 1976. Another rider from Molise, Rich. The most recent I can remember was Davide apolonio Remember him? Sprinter yeah
3: vaguely he rode for team
4: sky he's got two years um years a few years later he tested positive he also he was rode for very chunky yes he was quite chunky and um, pro cycling stats tells me that he was still racing last year well 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 for amore vita but today all of this chat about Molise not existing um has is re-immersed as in the question the burning question of yesterday um, the geography of the Giro. Well, Caleb, Ewan let you down. So Caleb, Ewan you let me down today. Of well, well, we we had a we had a bit of a thing, didn't we? A bit of a brainstorm. Who were the sort of cerebral? I'm not saying that Caleb Ewan isn't cerebral. If anything, today's press conference told us that he's a very deep-thinking chap. But we, we thought about the kind of guys, the you know, the sort of men after our own heart, the Euro Ponces, um, <laughs> <What who laughs> the, you speak for the, yourself, the the, the Giro Vagandas, the, the guys Flanners, who are riding who, around
3: with their heads up, looking around. I came up with a couple of um, suggestions. I mentioned Barker Mollema last night, didn't I? So you spoke to him today. I
4: spoke to him today. And I also asked Dan Martin this question. How much does he take in on races? How much does he sort of make a mental note of? And um, is that important? You know, does it give any kind of advantage to, to be at one with one's surroundings? Now, Balca, a couple of days ago, Caleb Ewan won a stage and he was asked about his previous victories in Italy and he said he couldn't remember where they are, he doesn't know where they were in Italy and I asked a couple of people, which rider might, you know, keep mental notes and really sort of get under the skin of the Grand Tours where they are and a few people said, Balca Um is that, is that true?
8: Uh, well, I don't know. I mean, I've done a lot of Grand Tours by now, so yeah, I think I know the geography in Italy, Spain and France pretty well. I mean, i uh, also done a lot of training camps in, in those countries. Uh, yeah, of course, right now I know more or less where we are in Italy, but it's not like I really study every day where we are or, or the characteristics
4: of the, of the country or the cities where we, where we finish. Have you ever seen somewhere on a bike race and just remarked on how beautiful it was or, and gone back there then with your family or your, your wife? Yeah, well, definitely you you have time to look around
8: so, uh, on the easier days. Uh, yeah, but I've never uh, think... Well, I don't think I ever uh, came back there, really. I mean, of course, you see some nice regions. Uh, yeah, especially, I think, in the, in the mountains or, or the hilly the hilly regions that, yeah, maybe you think about, okay, maybe one day... I, I could, could could go back here but yeah in the end there, there's so many nice places to go and probably you're too busy in the end to, to really go back there do
4: you think there's an advantage with maybe sort of having more of a, a kind of present relationship with your surroundings as a rider the rider's like Roglic for example goes for a walk some mornings outside his hotel Swain Tuft used to go for a barefoot walk every morning and we, we often hear that riders now they're always on their phone they barely look out of the bus window do you think there's an advantage to just sort of being grounded in your surroundings on a bike race well, I'm not not sure if that's really an advantage I think nowadays the
8: riders are so focused and then yeah maybe it's even a disadvantage when you look around too much uh because you have to stay focused on the bike and uh yeah i think you uh, to keep your attention really and uh, your focus on the race so no i i wouldn't say that's uh, that's an advantage but uh yeah i think I, I like to to look where where i am and uh yeah to look also to the nice nice places on uh yeah in europe
4: and, and on this world last thing today we're going into molise did you know that the, the name of the region uh, no, I thought we were in uh, Abruzzo. We're starting in Abruzzo, but we're going to Molise. But there's a myth, almost a meme in Italy, that Molise doesn't exist. Um, that it was a figment of someone else's imagination. So, if you don't know where you are, it's okay. Um, because apparently it doesn't exist anyway.
6: okay. Well, I saw the halfway point today. We actually pass uh, our uh, sponsor Vinifantini's hotel, you know, and it's... Honestly, I don't know anything about Italy, the geography or anything, so it's actually even the wine, obviously I'm a big fan of wine, and we don't, Literally, it's only Spanish wine we get in Andorra, so it's kind of, yeah, it is, it is nice to actually explore the country a little bit, although most of the time you're just bouncing from kind of rubbish hotel to the next rubbish hotel, you know, it's uh, you just see the team bus and the scenery passing by quickly, but obviously it's a beautiful country, it's somewhere, yeah, there's a mate and amazing places to visit but i mean, i'm enjoying this tour we do seem to see quite a lot of the country this year
4: do you remember places do you make that mental note and think god i you know i must go there on holiday one time or is it do you often forget you you're passing a place in the race and it's incredible but then you know three months later you probably wouldn't remember where it was
6: right now i mean it's the scenery is amazing but the hotels aren't really up to scratch so it's, gonna, it's uh but, yeah i mean it's it's amazing uh it's it's hard to actually remember where you are, you know. It all it all becomes a blur at the end of the at the end of the three weeks, and uh, but yeah, obviously it's it's one of the most scenic grand tours I we do, and the scenic races we do, and right? yeah, it's just uh, it's, it's, and it's more the the atmosphere and everything
4: that makes this place so special. Well, this, Rich, sort of stems from, I suppose, my own desire to think of myself as a, you know, man of the natural Euro-pons. world. Very, well, Europons, but also man of the natural world. Very, you know, very at one with my surroundings, having a symb- symbiotic relationship with the terrain, the land. And um, But also, Rich, part of this kind of interest and curiosity about riders' relationship with geography was sparked by a conversation I had with the director Sportif the other day. I won't reveal his identity, but he was sort of maligning the fact that a lot of teams now, they have these very long briefings and direct Sportifs give these very detailed PowerPoint presentations. And this director was referring to the stage that started, where did we start that day? in Piacenza and finished in Cattolica. And there was going to be wind that day, and um, you know most of the teams now they use VeloViewer and they use a, there's a, a, a thing that a thing you can you can tell how technically minded I am. There's another term. sort of app that works with VeloViewer called Windsock, which tells you exactly to the you know the tenth decimal point of a uh, of a kilometre per second or. Um, per hour or whatever, the, the wind speed, direction, and, and they use that. This director of Sportifs said to his riders that morning or he told me that he'd he said to them, imagine Italy, imagine Italy w- what it looks like. Imagine a big weather front in the middle of Italy. And and he sort of rubbed his, his, his forefinger and thumb together and, and he was sort of telling me that at the time he'd wanted them to sort of feel the energy in the air and feel the conditions and just have a sort of a, a, a tune into their sixth sense for the conditions and, and the weather and the wind and he sort of you know shrugged his shoulders at this point when he was telling me this as though it was a kind of a lost cause because riders now you know they're very reliant on devices and they get bombarded with um, with information and um, yeah it made me think you know I, I, I taught there to fall back on your intuition well i said that i said there's a Balcom you know rog for example he goes he goes for walks in the morning and and i like to think that he's he's kind of getting attuned communing with uh, he's communing with something with something in the air yeah and um, I, I think this is probably uh, a ridiculous notion and a ridiculous sort of well, romantic um, you, concept that I'm pursuing here but it's a nice, it's a nice idea if you can guess
3: it? the sports director um, who talked about the weather front over Italy then you can uh, if you correctly guess the director win a t-shirt how about that win one of our new Cycling Podcast t-shirts which is available at our website the cyclingpodcast.com. There you go. I'll have to keep the, the, the winner and the identity of the director a secret, however. We should wrap things up, Dion. We go should,
4: but we will consider we will continue our pursuit of the sort of weather whisperer or <laughs> <laughs> um, over the next few days. Oh yeah, we want
3: to hear it from this gentleman on the podcast, that's for sure. Anyway, thanks very much, Daniel. Let's do it again tomorrow. Thank you, Rich.